0: Hello and welcome. This is a podcast Explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and I am joined by my colleague, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine, Maxim Panchenko. Hello, Maxim. Hello. Thanks again for joining me in this conversation about the major events and trends in the the past months. We are talking about June 2021. So what were the key events in this month, in, in your opinion?
1: So first of all, we're going to cover the recent successes that Ukraine has had in uh, football. And then we're going to switch to some more serious topics like the recent NATO summit and its outcomes for Ukraine, the Putin-Biden meeting. And then also we'll switch to some domestic issues. uh, We'll dwell on the reforms, on the pending reforms, on the launch of the land market that is starting on the 1st of July. And we'll talk about justice reform and a bit about decentralization.
0: But why do you call football not a serious topic? That's a very serious topic.
1: Well, uh, yes, but against the backdrop of, you know, security issues and everything else. I mean, it's, of course, football is a very uplifting thing and has been so in the recent days because of the things that we're going to discuss. But at the end of the day, there are topics that have been protecting and more negative. But
0: that's amazing, basically, how football is really important for for such a country as Ukraine. And uh, when we are asking why, it's mostly because, you know, this feeling of maybe lack of uh, freedom, lack of agency on the international arena. And for Ukrainian citizens, this kind of recognition of sports events is very important. It's also kind of an interesting, interesting symbol of a society and maybe Ukraine is not alone here. So what happened, we are now in the Euro 2020 and uh, at Ukraine World we wrote an article, our colleague wrote an article before this championship, Kostya Romashko wrote an article why Ukraine can impress at Euro 2020. And uh, well, initially, uh, although I'm a fan of of the national team, but I was a bit skeptical, you know, but it seems that Ukraine really impressed because right now we are in the quarterfinals and Ukraine is impressed among four teams that were not really expected in the quarterfinals. Quarter Czech Republic, also Switzerland, Denmark and Ukraine, because, you know, there are other top teams like France, Germany, Portugal, Netherlands, who are now out of the contest. And here we have a very interesting quarterfinals. We have, let's say, the top league countries like Italy, Spain, England and Belgium. And for I would say the dark horses, right? Those teams that uh, really impressed and maybe surprised. And it's interesting that Ukraine is part of them. So Ukraine has beaten uh, Sweden in a very interesting match, and, and Sweden was very good and was quite close to victory, but Ukraine has won against Sweden, two against one, and it's it, it's you know very interesting some paradoxes because Ukraine was only a third in its group, but the first team, Netherlands, is out of the contest and the second team, Austria, is out of the contest too. And Ukraine, it's a kind of this Ukrainian cunningness, I would say, you know, to be not the best but still to qualify to the next round. Another interesting parallel is that uh, everybody in Ukraine remembers Euro 2012 when Ukraine and Poland were hosting the event and by the way, this event was still is, is still in a very big memory of Ukrainians because You know, they welcome so many people from all around the world. And Ukraine lost two games uh, to France and England, second and third game. But the first great game, Ukraine won against Sweden with two against one. You know, so it's a kind of repetition, very symbolic one.
1: Yes, and uh, what I would like to say is that, like it or not, for instance, I do not happen to be a fan of football, but like it or not, football is about so many things apart from sports itself. I mean, like, if you remember Euro 2012, that you have been talking about how much it uh, changed Ukraine, about the image of Ukraine and about the preparations that were taking place. And now how how much uplifting the path of the Ukrainian team in in this uh, championship is going. I mean... It's very inspiring, it's very uniting and that's what Ukraine always needs.
0: Yes, and, and we also we also see this social factor, how the football championship, well, despite all the criticism, we understand that this is a field with a lot of money, with a lot of, you know, very weird things and uh, it's also a sign of kind of a growing inequality, economic inequality in the world, but still for countries like Ukraine, well, it brings international attention, it brings investment, well, sometimes also very dubious investments because the stadium which were built there are so many rumors and scandals how much corruption was there but they are there and you know people are are playing and and the games are are, are going there and um, another interesting thing is of course politics behind it because ahead of the championship Ukraine presented its uh, national t-shirts and with the map of Ukraine with the contours and of course with Donbass and Crimea and Russia was absolutely furious about that and there was a huge scandal, and there were also slogans of the revolution of dignity, glory to Ukraine, uh, glory to to the heroes, which Russia was presenting as a kind of a Nazi slogan, which is of course not the case, and we published an article at Ukraine World, in which we are saying, uh, describing the deep roots of these slogans. But it's, you know, interesting how it is all also politicized, right?
1: Oh yes, and uh, well, I think one could expect something like that, Uh, I mean, when you talk about the reaction on the part of Russia, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's about what Ukraine's values in its self presentation. So yes, that has been a cornerstone issue for Ukraine, and we were very proud to you know to make that part of our identity visible to the world and to try to do that and to try to promote that. So yes.
0: So Ukraine is among eight top teams right now in the Euro uh, twenty twenty, which is held in twenty twenty one, and um, it is going to meet England on Saturday in the quarterfinals, and it's going to meet it in Rome, not in England, because. This this championship is scattered all around the European continent. And it's interesting that, as far as I understand, the Italy, you know, has imposed some restrictions, very sharp restrictions. So you cannot really go there from England or from Ukraine. From Ukraine, it's even more difficult. So... The question is, how many people in Italy, in Rome, and other cities, how many of them are English for example, or fans of the English national team, or, and how many Ukrainians? And my guess is that the number of Ukrainians in Italy is much higher than the number of English, because um, there are so many uh, people who are working there. So it's interesting what we will have on the stadium, because it's also another kind of symbol of such teams, like we have seen it also with Hungary, by the way, how much they get support from the spectators and, um, for example, how the stadiums were singing the Ukrainian National Anthem and the games were in Bucharest in Romania, for example. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, that's a very important source of inspiration and maybe that even is a part of a victory or a loss of a given team. So, yes, I believe I even saw messages from the Italian embassy here in Ukraine recently unfortunately detailing that uh, trips to Rome would not be possible. So, yes, we can only hope for the fact that uh, this would not be a groundbreaking fact for our uh, team to win there and we hope it will win. And
0: the last thought and we'll probably finish on that is that this championship also shows how these underdogs the teams which are probably weaker in class of their football players but which are quite strong in the team spirit, they get substantial results and uh, among those for example teams like those underdogs, Czech Republic Denmark, Switzerland and Ukraine, there are other teams who are really impressed with their team spirit like Poland or Hungary and it's interesting how to see those human emotions But let's go to political things. We talked about football as a kind of, you know, in the context of this international recognition, but Mm -hmm. there are very important international events which are going on. And in June, we had NATO summit and Ukraine was hoping about, you know, confirmation of its NATO aspirations. And we had a very important meeting between U.S. President Biden and Russian President Putin. So... What we can say about it?
1: Well, if we start uh, with the NATO summit, even prior to its being held, there had been uh, some dissatisfaction on the part of Ukraine, because Ukraine had not been invited to the summit and the bloc's leaders, they said probably a very reasonable thing on their part, that uh, it was just the format that did not provide for Ukraine's participation or anyone's from beyond the bloc to that matter, because other parties that are not uh, among the member states don't participate as well. However, I can also understand the position of Ukraine's authorities, why Ukraine. I mean, could and should have become an exception in this sense, because uh, Ukraine is on the border between NATO and the immediate threat to NATO, which is uh, Russia, and it's being belligerent all over the front with, with NATO. So, yes, uh, that was kind of a negative information background that this uh, summit was held. However, it can be said that this was quite compensated with the final statement that was adopted by the NATO summit, because essentially the final statement reiterated a thing uh, that had been stipulated in the 2008 Bucharest Summit resolution, according to which It was said that one day Ukraine would become a member state of NATO and it would be done through a membership action plan. So, why is this important? Because it should be put in a broader picture, because back then, in 2008, this was promised to several states, for instance, also to Georgia. And after we had Viktor Yanukovych as president since uh, 2010, there was a disparity between Ukraine and Georgia in how we were approaching NATO, because under Yanukovych's presidency, we were not going to NATO at all. And even after return to pro-Western powers, Ukraine was still not promised again this path, this membership action plan and so on and so forth. And this resolution in 2021 became the first time when we returned to our place in this, you know, in this lineup of states that are going to, that, that want to join NATO. So we're back in the game, it can be said.
0: But still there is no clarity about the date, for example, when we get this membership action plan, right? So it's a kind of a, we see quite a strong criticism from Ukraine Foreign Ministry, from Minister Kuleba for, for example, who is saying that look we cannot be in a position when NATO says you need to do reforms, reforms, reforms. We need to some steps from uh, NATO countries themselves. So it's interesting how Ukraine is really, I would say it, it's a bit upset about this in NATO's position right now.
1: That is true, but again, as in each similar case we need to zoom out and to take a broader picture, because we need to understand which uh, risks NATO would be facing if it was more welcoming to Ukraine. Even if there was unanimity in NATO itself about positivity for Ukraine becoming a member of a state, there still would be a question of immediate risks that would follow on the part of Russia, how Russia would react to this. Russia has already stipulated kind of its attitude, not only with words, but also with actions. This is essentially what Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine since 2014 has been about. About Ukraine's movement and Russia's reaction to it to the West. So, it can be it should be understood by ukraine that nato member states also need to figure out what to do and not to be too harsh and not to be too quick in steps that may otherwise lead to any repercussions
0: yeah but on the same time well uh, i understand the concept that you know if you accept ukraine then NATO will be bordering Russia and it's very dangerous. So the other concept is the concept of this buffer zone and it worries Ukrainians very much. Nobody wants to be a buffer zone, right? And uh, Ukrainians don't want to be a buffer zone. And uh, we have seen, for example, with Eastern Partnership, how the European Union was thinking about creating this buffer zone between itself and Russia. And what we see right now is that, for example, Belarus is, is going to leave uh, mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. Eastern Partnership. And if you Belarus is leaving Eastern Partnership, Partnership. That means Russia is going there and there is no buffer zone anymore. So if you don't expand, uh, the other will expand. This idea of a buffer zone is a a very illusionary idea. And um, when we're talking about, for example, 2008, uh, it's just because Ukraine and Georgia were promised membership actions plans but not really receiving membership action plans. One of the reading is that because of that, Russia started uh, war against Georgia in August, right? So um, the summit was in April, if I'm not mistaken, and Russia started the war against Georgia in August. And it was not really, really well read, well understood by the many countries in the world, I think until 2014 and Russia's aggression against Ukraine.
1: Yes, that I agree on.
0: Uh, Let's turn to another very important meeting, another very important summit, you can say, summit between US and Russia's presidents. Mm -hmm. What happened there?
1: Well, this was the first meeting between President Biden and uh, President Putin that uh, took place in Geneva a couple of weeks back. And yes, I think the phrase that has been most used here in Ukraine to describe the summit about how Ukraine was discussed was that Ukraine was almost not discussed at all. That it was only mentioned broadly in some contexts and this is something that was taken by journalists from the words of the leaders of uh, primarily of President Biden. And yes, that would be upsetting for Ukraine that Ukraine was not such a big issue in these negotiations, because Ukraine, of course, counts on the support of the United States. However, there are two things to say about here. First of all, again, we need to take a broader image. The agenda between the US and Russia is so broad just because of the sheer scope of these players in the international arena. So it is logical that as much as we don't like it, that we sometimes may not be the centerpiece of it. We need to fight to be the centerpiece of it, and that's what Ukraine's authorities are doing. However, we need to understand that sometimes this is possible not to be the centerpiece. And at the same time, The second point is that we need to understand that the outcomes of the summit were not only bad for Ukraine, that we were not mentioned at all, or were not mentioned very much, uh, but the outcomes have not been very promising for the parties either, because both parties intended to have separate press conferences, which is not a very good sign in this sense. It should be understood that this is the initial meeting between the newly sworn-in President of the United States and uh, President Putin, so it's more about symbols. We also need to understand that there have been no major decisions. I mean, I think the maximum the parties have done is reinstated the ambassadors to each other. However, at the same time, several days after ambassador of the US was reinstated in Russia, that same ambassador said, sorry, we have no opportunities to issue visas of the United States to Russians because of how little employees we have here, you know, in the embassy. So this was a symbolic gesture, but there are so many problems on political level, on the consular level, so it cannot be said that the summit was that much of a success.
0: I think the very fact that they have met each other uh, is is already kind of a, an event in itself, yes. and the, the fact that they held uh, a different press conferences is also very important because we remember how, for example, Mr. Trump was meeting Mr. Putin in Helsinki, mm-hmm. and they were holding a common press conferences, a common press conference which was not very good for Mr. Trump. Uh, it seemed from kind of a, by external observers, but it's also interesting how, for example, Minsk agreements were mentioned and what Biden and Putin understand by sticking to Minsk agreements, because they have a, a very different understandings of this. Uh, because Putin is sticking, you know, to this very literal interpretation that, for example, you need to hold the elections and only on the occupied territories in Donbass and only after that. Ukraine will be allowed to take its border back with Russia. But given the situation, the background, what's happening now? Now we see that Russia is distributing passports on a massive scale. And I think Russian passports. And I think this is kind of uh, this idea of, you know, what we call in Ukraine passportization, that Russia is distributing passports and it is, for example, it's going to do the same in Belarus, for example, and uh, kind of uh, integrating, let's say, uh, swallowing this country and swallowing parts of Ukraine as well. So these are not very good ideas in terms of, you know, implementing Minsk agreements because how you can hold the elections ukrainian elections on these occupied territories when there is increasing number of russian citizens those who vote and those who stand as candidates for example and um, another interesting thing is that zelensky uh, ukrainian president didn't succeed in meeting biden before the biden putin meeting and this they only talked over the phone it seems that Zelensky will meet Biden soon, maybe in July, but um, it's also not a very good sign, I think.
1: I think I feel like I'm referring to this too many times today, but uh, again, we need to understand the bigger picture. And unfortunately, uh, we are not the center of the world in the eyes of the United States. Uh, We might be the uh, very important, maybe the most important front for Russia, but for the United States, and, you know, their agenda is to uh, push for reforms in Ukraine. And for the time being, it seems that on the part of, uh, of the new administration in the United States, this is a bet they're making more. On ukraine than helping ukraine so they see what what situation ukraine is you know with all the uh, troops along the border and so on and so forth but it seems like the united states choose to demand first demand reforms first and only then talk about you know any uh, security cooperation which would be you know
0: yeah, we understand this, but we also understand the geopolitical situation in which, for example, Belarus is increasingly turning into kind of a new province of Russia. And, yes. and um, of course, with this view of um, re-bo- Russian empire reborn, it's it's kind of very, very threatening. But let's talk about reforms. Over just a couple of days... We have several news. Today Mm -hmm. we have the news, well, basically that the land market has started uh, operating in Ukraine and this big land reform, which also creates lots of controversies in Mm -hmm. Ukraine, lots of criticism by including pro-Russian so-called media or pro-Russian agents who are saying that Ukraine is going to sell its land to foreigners. But when we look deeper into this, you know, land market reform, we, we see that it's opening up for purchasing and buying for citizens, not for states. So, this, the, the land which is owned by, by the state is not going to be sold. But it's interesting that uh, basically Ukraine since the 90s didn't have a proper land market. So, people who are owning the agrarian land, for example, they inherited it from the Kolkhoz times, they couldn't sell it.
1: Yes, and you know when it comes to this topic... We need to remember several things. First of all, Ukraine is one of the very last countries, and I feel like this has been reiterated so much in media, but people do not understand what this means, that Ukraine is one of the last countries that uh, have not had an open market uh, of land. And the very fact that the market being opened in most other countries did not lead to any collapse whatsoever. It, It just showcases that there is a path forward we're not going you know to to downshift an economy or something so this is this is okay this is healthy uh, because the, the rest of the world is alive and the second thing I would like to say is that uh, the devil as it usually is is in the details for instance when you look uh, on the bill uh, on the on the law passed you know on the regulations that are now in place according to which the market is going to, to operate there are numerous restrictions on the amount on la- of land that can be bought by a single person uh there are restrictions on the amount of land that can, that will be uh, able to be bought for uh, corporate entities. And as you mentioned, uh, Ukrainian land is not going to be sold to any foreign countries uh, and so on and so forth. So people need to know that to understand that there are safeguards in place that they think are not and thus are afraid. But in fact, there is so much less to be afraid of because of these safeguards.
0: Yeah, exactly. People many people are, you know, instinctively fearing that Ukraine will sell all its land to international creditors or whatever. And here, uh, people are really in this situation when, you know, they're feeling that the land is the key resource in Ukraine, the key natural resource. It's like gas in in Russia or, I don't know, oil in uh, Saudi Arabia or something like that. Uh and I think that's that's a very, you know, traumatic feeling because we need to we need to understand the Ukrainian history. We need to understand we need to look it at in the perspective. We need to look at the two first two world wars which had Ukraine as a very important factor because the um, the European empires were fighting for resources, including for the land in Eastern Europe. It's it's the case of the First World War, and it's also the case of the Second World War, when, for example, for Nazi Germany, the concept of Lebensraum, the living space, was precisely referring to Eastern Europe and to Ukraine, Ukrainian lands in which uh, they, they could feed this, you know, growing uh, third empire, the, the German empire, Nazi empire. So... All those fears, and of course we can remember, you know, peasants, revolts, including during the Soviet times. Holodomor, the artificial famine, which killed at least 4 million people in the 30s. But there was also famine in the 40s. There was there was famine in the 20s. People are afraid of that. And these stories, which are told from, uh, you know, from generations to generations, are of course living in, in people's minds. And in this trauma, people are not really reading into the details, for example, they're not really reading into the fact that this state is not going to sell the land, the land is not going to be sold to foreigners, to non-residents, and there are restrictions whether you can, for example, as a single person, right now it's 100 hectares, which is not very big in Ukrainian terms. So uh, it's a very irrational topic and we need to understand all those traumas that are in Ukrainian society about that.
1: And I think a core thing here is to understand how it works economically, because if you cannot buy or sell land, you're not very much interested in investing in it, which leads to the fact that uh, the effectiveness of production on this land is not that very high, because you have not invested in it, you had not impetus to do so. However, if you own the land and you understand that this is yours, you have every reason to invest in it, in it being uh, fertilized and so on and so forth, or for the most effective machinery to be used there and so so on and so forth, and that is what is going to lead to bigger production. So there is every economic sense to not to be afraid of this market.
0: Yeah, and let's not forget that Ukrainian agrarian sector is structured, there are very big players, the so-called agrarian holdings, who usually do not own the land, who are renting it, so who are, how to say it, who are kind of in a leasing or in renting conditions with the owners of the land, and the renting rates are not very high, which permits to these holdings, you know, to get super benefits from not having a real genuine market of a land market on the other hand for example small farmers uh, find it very difficult you know to plan and to make a kind of a long-term planning because they only rent the land they very often do not own it and tomorrow an owner can come and say well this is my land so (laughs) goodbye so there are many many of these things which we can discuss but it's very important to find another reform which we're talking about these days a lot is a reform, And I would say this is one of the most important reforms. And uh, over the past days, we had some developments in it. Maxim, which yes, ones?
1: Yes, indeed, we have finally proceeded to uh, adopting a law on the High Commission for, of Qualification for Judges. And this is something that has been the cornerstone of the entire justice reform. And the justice reform, in its turn, has been the cornerstone of the many aspects of Ukrainian relations with the West. It has been included to conditionality of many agreements we've had, financial agreements, the relations we've had with the International Monetary Fund and with the European Union and when we talk about the macrofinancial assistance, for instance, on the part of the European Union. So this is I think I would be right in saying that this is the reform that has been paid much more attention than any other in Ukraine and finally proceeding with it, uh, well, it testifies to several things. First of all, it is very pleasant that we finally are doing this because this is going to solve many problems and secondly, it makes it, makes it understandable that uh, finally the pressure of the Western partners of Ukraine and their recommendations they have finally sank in in Ukraine, among Ukrainian leadership. So hopefully this is the start of quite a long but a very productive path that we're taking.
0: But let's give a bit of a background. What's happening right now? Because we're talking so much about judiciary reform and there was a judiciary reform under Poroshenko, for example. So you may ask what's happening now? What is the difference between the two? And the thing is that, well, the, the position of international community has changed. Because I would say that the international community itself understood its own mistakes, Uh, because uh, after the revolution of dignity, the key message from the international community, from the Venice Commission, from the European Union, from the United States was, look, guys, you have to make judiciary power independent. And as as with separation of powers, you know, as Mm -hmm. is with this doctrine of Mr. Montesquieu, you have to have executive, legislative, and judiciary powers separated and independent from each other. Because the international community was thinking... Uh, look, what happened during Yanukovych? During Yanukovych, one of the opposition leaders, Mrs. Timoshenko, who is still a very active Ukrainian politician, was put in jail by Yanukovych because Yanukovych was considering her as her key opponent. So she was put in jail and a judge, a court, has put her in jail uh, because judges were and courts were dependent, politically dependent. They were de- dependent on the executive power. And by saying this, international community was saying, look, you have to make judiciary independent from the political power, from this executive, you know, vertical. And that was the key reform. So the, the self-governance of the judiciary, uh, judiciary. What the international community didn't see at the time, and Ukraine was not you know, strong enough to, to say it, because sometimes the Ukrainian debates, well, the Ukrainian arguments, are not really developed inside the country. That's, that's a pity also. We, sometimes we don't, don't have a, a really deep discussion inside. But, but it's, it's getting better, I think. Well, the thing is that judiciary itself is very corrupt. If you give the self-governance to a corrupt body, to a corrupt community of judges, you know, prosecutors, whatever, what you have? Will you have a real reform? The answer is no. If you try to uh, you know, combat the corruption and give the self-governance to a community which is itself corrupt you will have even more corruption, not less corruption. So now the idea is different. Now the idea is that you have to break this internal corruption uh, inside this kind of a judiciary community. And the problem is that the only way how Ukrainian civil society and international partners are, are seeing the way out is to have a bigger voice of the international community in the that bit these two institutions, major institutions, who are responsible, you know, for supervising all the judiciary. It's the High Qualification Commission of Judges uh, and uh, the High Council of Justice. justice. And the High Council is upper even, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea, basically, under Zelensky, well, this High Qualification Commission is uh, dismantled. We don't have it. And uh, there is lots of criticism about this High uh, Commission of Justice. so, the idea is to reload these two institutions. How you reload them? You just rewrite the conditions, how you pick people to serve into these institutions. And the key debate uh, all through June was. What is the role of international community, for example? Ukraine said, okay, we will have three uh, people from the judiciary community, Ukrainian, and three people from the international community. But the question is, if there is 3-3, three, three, for example, then during the voting on a particular candidate, if this, you know, judiciary mafia picks up a candidate and international community says no, what is the primary decision? And uh, with this uh, law on the High Qualification Commission of Judges, we see that the the primary decision is on international community international experts but this itself creates so many questions because a will it be really operational? Will, for example, constitutional court of Ukraine not say that, look, this is kind of a, you know, (laughs) intervention into our sovereignty. It can happen. And the second question is, well, it also shows kind of an inability of Ukrainian internal inability to cope with this problem that you need international experts to do that. And my answer would be very, you know, long term. I think we need to think in terms of very long term things. You know, you have to make this community, judiciary community really integral in its nature. And for this, you have to have a very long process of, uh, you know, kind of a, I would say improving it through better education, through th- through so many things. Uh, I think we're still thinking in very short term horizons. And of course this, you know, draft law was harshly criticized by all those voices of people who are saying that Ukraine is under external governance and that it's international Western curators who are governing Ukraine. Of course it's, it's giving lots of, you know, how to say, food for them to yes. to strengthen the voice.
1: Yes, and I agree and I would like to go back to your argument that uh, we need to think in long term and that makes every sense because if you think about gathering people for serving in these institutions now, as a one-time thing, the international, the cooperation with the international community, this can be done and this should be done, probably. However, when we think about how, look, in four years, I think I'm not mistaken, saying in four years, members of these uh, commissions, uh, councils are going to be re-elected because that's the law and so on and so forth, we will not be able to have the is, you know, this manual leverage on the situation for all the time. We need to make things automatic and effective in this automatic nature. So, the one thing is to do a one-time thing, to gather the commission for the first time, but ever after that, we need to to achieve the same effective results through education, through instilling it in the minds, like it has been in the West, like it is characteristic for Western democracies, but in this sense, that corruption is unacceptable. And of course, this sounds as much difficult as it sounds romantic. However, the, the results of Western democracies, again, have shown that this is possible and this works if one applies enough efforts. So, of course, all of this will largely depend on the political will that will be enjoyed by the further Administrations, presidential administrations, further parliaments, and so on and so forth, because since we're talking about the longer term. However, I think, given that we already have the two successive and both pro-Western administrations, even though they were rivals between themselves, the Poroshenko and the Zelensky administration, so maybe there is some hope for this further continuity that uh, Ukraine will finally be able to pull it off.
0: Yeah, let's hope. But uh, this topic of external governance is really toxic in Ukrainian society. Yes. And uh, recently we have uh, have published a very interesting report, I would advise you to read it on Ukraine World website, why conspiratorial propaganda is effective in Ukraine. We've done it with Arena uh, think tank of London School of Economics with uh, some other organizations, but it shows a very, you know, worrying trend is that Ukrainian society largely internalizes this narrative, so agrees with the narrative that Ukraine is under external governance, that it is not self-sustainable, that it is not strong enough, that it doesn't have a really own voice, and on the one hand, we understand that well. This approach to judicial reform is obviously a path in the right direction, but it's not the answer to all the questions because you know, in in terms of society, it can also increasingly alienate citizens from authorities. And saying that, well, look, Zelensky is not deciding anything; it's all ruled by Washington and Brussels. But uh, let's follow these reforms that are very, very important. And I think I will wrap up on this. We have. Some some other topics to discuss, but we've run out of time. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Volodymyr Monk. chief editor of the ukraineworld.org website. And I'm joined by my colleague, Maxim Panchenko, who is analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. We are making this podcast at Internews Ukraine, which is running the Ukraine World website. You can follow us uh, on social networks, on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. And please subscribe to our podcast on google podcast on soundcloud on apple whatever platforms you like and stay with us